Hello, and welcome to today's Startup Equity Matters interview. And today's a panel as some topics need covering from multiple angles. This podcast is for early stage founders, their teams, and investors. We're helping create value from equity. Too many startups don't know how to manage their equity well because it's too complex. The information isn't readily available. And so here we're going to unpack as much of the best practices, actionable insights as we can, hopefully some great stories, and we'll try and make it as fun as we can. There might be a little bit of financial and legal stuff that we talk about, but this is all general in nature. So we're really happy to have an incredible panel today. We've put together different disciplines. Uh, We have Georgie Gilbert from Deal, Kathy Wober-Gardner from Montgomery Pacific, and Jerry McLeod from the Search Experience. So we have an EOR, um, legal, and recruitment and hiring. So three of the most important elements of launching a rocket in the USA. Of course, I'll be covering the equity element. And between the four of us, we're going to help you unpack many of the key elements of launching a company in the US. Let's go. So Cake is um, super passionate, as you know, helping startups to scale and specifically uh, helping startups uh, with their equity to create value for their teams and for investors. From a Cake side of things today, I'll be playing uh, two roles. So as a company, you know, we can help with a range of equity related matters when moving to the US from, uh, you know, company setup, uh, stock option plans, you know, your cap table and capital raising. Uh, we have guides and toolkits as well on our website to check out. But we also have experience in expanding, you know, we've become a Delaware C Corp, pitched and raised money from US investors, including Jason Calacanis, pretty wild. You know, we've done advisory shares in the US, we're hiring and we're going to market there. So hopefully I can bring some context from the founder side of things as well. Yeah, so successfully expanding to the US can make or break, you know, many of the milestones for us founders. You know, it can open up huge markets. It can be the first step in in global growth. And if successfully executed, it can be the catalyst for unlocking future funding rounds, getting interest from international investors. So, you know, incredibly important milestone for many um, startups expanding. You know, there's great names that have done this before. Uh, you know, Canva, Mr. Young, have been very successful and, and we can all see the growth trajectories that they're on. But what does it take? You know, there's a hell of a lot to learn. This panel have helped hundreds of startups on this journey from setting up, flipping up, hiring, you know, running and rewarding US teams. So, you know, we have, we've got you covered. Without um, taking up too much time, I'll hand over to the amazing panelists to introduce themselves. So I'm just going to go from left to right on my screen. Um, Jeremy, do you want to um, say good day, mate? And yeah, yeah, let everyone know what you're up to. Thanks, Jason. And thanks for the invite to be here. So I'm a Kiwi who lives in Sydney, but runs a recruitment business in the US and have gone through, you know, this exact expansion that you talk about, went over to the US, started a business, now have staff that are employed in the US. And we specialize in helping companies build their sales and marketing teams. And I would say of our customer base, about 50% are non-US originated companies. So really have a heavy focus on foundational hires, building teams that are in different places to where the companies have originated and where the head offices are. Obviously, something that is very important to get the right people and something that we are super passionate about. And I guess as a Kiwi, I'm really passionate about helping ANZAC companies get to the US, really start to compete on the global stage and win by building really good teams. Amazing, very important part of expansion. I remember catching up with your colleague up in San Francisco uh, a couple of months ago and, you know, getting those insights into a new market, such a big advantage. So, yeah, looking forward to learning more. Next up, we have Kathy again, caught up with you. We've been partnering for quite some time, I think, uh, right since the beginning of our expansion. And I think you've been responsible for helping many Aussie startups, you know, getting up into yeah. the US. And so, yeah. yeah, really excited to have you on. You want to um, say Thank hi you. and, and share yeah. a bit with the team? Yep. Good evening from San Francisco. I'm Kathy Weber Gardner, a partner in a boutique corporate law firm here in San Francisco called Montgomery Pacific. We call it boutique because that means it's small. My partner and I started this firm over a decade ago after leaving partnerships in multi-international law firms in the U.S. We focus on working extensively with Australian and New Zealand tech and life science companies. And we help companies get 
incorporated in the U.S. We work with them to do their CEO level type offer letters, confidentiality agreements. We help them translate their Australian commercial agreements to U.S. We are mergers and acquisitions lawyers. We work on equity financings, and which includes safes. And we do flip-ups, which I think we'll be talking about later if you're not familiar with what that means. And finally, we'll set up, for U.S. companies, we'll set up their stock option plans. Amazing, very relevant to today. Takes me through, uh, I think, all of those things. And, you know, it's a lot. And so, yeah, really important to learn these things and also have access to great partners that can help you tackle these problems. So last but certainly not least, one of our best partners, Deal, uh, one of the fastest growing companies ever in the history of the universe. Great um, person in the local ecosystem, Georgie. Yeah, yeah so good. Day. Thanks, Jace. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking the time to join with us today. I work for Deal in partnerships, but Deal is a business that allows companies all over the world to compliantly hire and pay staff, contractors and employees um, all over the world. The idea for Deal is that the founders came out of MIT. They were friends at MIT and they wanted businesses to be able to hire the best talent and they wanted employees and contractors or people around the world to be able to work for organizations around the world that they wanted to work for. And so that businesses could capture, you know, the best talent regardless of where they live and, you know, without the need for those employees or contractors to have to move countries and to be able to work from where they they live and with their families and but still be able to work for the companies and the the best companies in the world and the, the companies that they want to work for. Absolutely love that. And why we love partnering with you is because you solve all that component of the problem. And then Cake's idea is that we can help solve equity in a very similar way. It's super complex to do cross-border. And so we work so well together and long may that continue. All right, wonderful. Well, so look, we've got the panelists. Everybody knows what we're here to tackle. So let's start a little bit broad and a little bit general. We've all seen a lot of companies expanding. We've all seen things go right, things go wrong. So let's sort of like set the team with some pros and cons about why the US? Maybe we'd just do a little bit of pros and cons from each of us. Let's go in reverse order this time. Georgie, like, why would companies be going to the US? And you know, what have you seen? Uh, obviously, it's a big market, but um, you know, anything more specific that you would like to highlight on the pros and cons side of things? I think, particularly for Australia and New Zealand businesses, um, what we see here is that just you know the total addressable market that you get access to by going to the US and expanding to the US. And I think if you can validate your product in the US, then in addition to what you've done in perhaps in Australia and New Zealand, then, you know, you're capturing one, a greater audience, and then you're building additional value into your business. And that means that you can then attract investors, you know, to invest in in your business. Another thing to sort of think about is expanding to the US gives you um, access to a, another time zone or just, you know, the ability to kind of capture another time zone outside of because Australia definitely sits in an, an area where it's difficult to, um, you know, capture the <laughs> the rest of the world market. But yeah, those would be some of the advantages to kind of, I guess, accessing the, the US um, market. Awesome. Anyone else want to, I guess, share pros and cons that they've seen that are, I guess, outside those Georgia shared or you want to double down on those? I mean, they're definitely totally valid points, Jason. And I think from a recruitment perspective, looking at the talent that you're able to get access to in the US and just the expertise that comes with it, I think you're able to tap into really seasoned professionals who have been there, done that. They've kind of, they have really good playbooks. They have the expertise of taking a company from a certain level and growing it exponentially. And, you know, in Australia and New Zealand, those skills are definitely growing and developing and we're getting more expats coming back that have kind of done it internationally and want to help to bring the next layer of talent through to get that expertise as well. But it is just so much more plentiful in the US to get hold of those people that have that expertise. And then, you know, the market size, the deal size that you can be doing over there. I think when you talk about the revenue numbers that people can achieve and the sales volume they can achieve in a market like the US compared to Australia and New Zealand, it is a real game changer for companies heading over there. Absolutely. Kathy, what's your thoughts? Anything to add on that one? Well, I'm a little biased. I'll say that initially, when I started working with Australian companies quite a long time ago, I was amazed at the flow of Australian tech and life science companies coming to Silicon Valley and outside and elsewhere outside Silicon Valley. And even with COVID, there is just no end. So clearly, um, I'm seeing a lot of attraction to the U.S. market and a lot of clear up benefits. And there's 
a lot of U.S. money that's eager to invest in Australian companies, which is a good thing. I don't have any cons, and I think you probably know why. So, No, I love it. I love it. Look, from my side of things, I think on the pro, and this is very relevant to Kate, the leading companies and the best practices in your industry quite often are in the US. So I think by taking that step, which can be a very challenging step because the competition's higher, it can help to elevate you towards the forefront of your industry and your niche, which then can help you with further expansion. It's certainly a strategy that we're, you know, we're working towards. It does open up later stage rounds. I think in Australia, you know, you've kind of got your seed series A is pretty strong, but series B, series C is very, very weak. And quite often they're done internationally anyway. So you kind of got to think, well, hopefully I'm not saying the wrong thing. I think it is like it's a weaker you know, part of our market here. I think it's been developing definitely, but I think B, C, D, E, you know, like they're all pretty common, very strong. They've been operating for a lot longer in the US. So that's a nice thing to if you're thinking forward a couple of rounds. Like, when am I going to take that step? Well, as soon as you take the step and you get the traction, you do open up a further opportunity there, in my opinion. And a con that I've noticed is just the size of the US. And one of the mistakes we made early on was like going to market in the US, which was a bit of a, an F up. So now we're going to market in LA and Denver specifically um, so that we can actually really understand those cities and the context of those cities and build trust and actually get like a whole marketing mix going with quite a small team and a small budget. And it looks like that's, you know, really helping us because, you know, there's different regions. They talk differently. They think differently. You know, they buy differently. And that is a level of complexity that you don't have to really get handle in Australia. And so it is a, as a con. It is something that you need to get across and it's quite challenging. So anyway, that's my two cents. <laughs> Actually, Jason, thank you. You have helped me think of a con, um, which is what you just said. And my clients are always shocked. The ones that haven't really worked in the U.S. before are shocked to find out that we have 50 states with their each having their own laws. And um, once I was asked when I thought the United States would turn away from that, and I just pointed them to the musical Hamilton, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> It's alarming to Australians to have to deal with that. I'm going to talk later about how there's an easy answer about where you're going to incorporate. It takes some getting used to, and it's from not just a corporate, but from a tax perspective. And I think that leads to why this panel is so important because there are hacks, there are best practices, there are ways around the complexity to some degree. And of course, you can't get around all the complexity, but you can certainly avoid the worst of it in the first few years when you're having a lot of other problems to deal with. So yeah, we're definitely helping tackle some of that today. So the next bit, I think we can, it's a little bit similar. And so perhaps we can dig into that in a little bit more detail, which is, you know, key differences. You know, I think one of the trickiest things is what don't you know? And I think one of the best things advisors can do is help founders, you know, see around some corners a little bit, you know, so you don't have to bump into every challenge. And so, you know, you might've been a founder in Australia for several years and now you're looking at the US and so... I guess specifically around employment, recruitment, and the legals and equity and the setup. Are there some key differences that we can just highlight straight off the bat to help people uh, maybe jot down a few things to look into? From a recruitment point of view, I mean, there's pros and cons to the differences between Australia and the US in terms of the regulations. As Kathy said, you've got 50 states that you need to be mindful of what the laws are from an employment perspective in every state. And using California as an example, you can have people that can quit a job one day and start another job the next day perfectly legally. They can go and work for a competitor perfectly legally the next day. There's no non-competes. They're very hard to enforce in a number of states in the US. So you have to be mindful of securing yourself, your customer base, making sure you have a good employment agreements that legislated correctly for the state that you're in. And that is a mistake that a lot of people make thinking that the US has sort of core employment law and that it's very easy to have something that's structured across every state, but you need to be quite specific as to where you've employed your people. A lot more litigious as well, right? From what I'm Very, hearing. Like, yeah. You so you have mark up your employment law and then somebody leaves, or even if they leave, I think it's much easier to get yourself in, in trouble, particularly in states like California. Totally. And you have protected classes for employees where certain people are protected more than others. And so you have to be really mindful about your performance, sort of performance management plan that you take people through as well. But equally, it means when you hire somebody, they can start with you the next day. So you don't have to worry about you know, if I'm planning to get somebody on board by this date, things can actually move very quickly. You can start a recruitment process on the first of the month and have somebody started with you that month if you move through your recruitment process and because notice periods are a bit shorter. 
Yeah, very interesting. I think it also means, you know, perhaps make sure your stock option plan is well set up because if they can legally switch very quickly, you probably want to make sure that you've got them engaged and retained as best you can with the right milestones and incentives to sticking with the company. That's only one element. And of course, there's other cultural elements that you can bring in to try and make sure you keep your best people. But we'll talk a little bit more about stock option plans as we go. Any other key differences people want to highlight? Building on what Jeremy said, his point is super well taken about the concept of whether you can have a non-compete or not. I'm I'm from Ohio where non-competes are fine, but as a California lawyer, Jeremy's right. You they can't happen here. And that takes people a while to, to get adjusted to. And Jeremy's other point about US concept of employment at will, that's across all 50 states. And it just means to what Jeremy said, that you can hire or fire somebody for any reason or no reason. Hire you today, tomorrow, I hate the color of your shirt, goodbye, see you, leave. You know, And of course, the nuances also, as Jeremy mentioned, is you can't discriminate against people when you're hiring and firing or when you're firing, and you have to be very careful about that. But conceptually, you can have what we call, we call them employee offer letters, not even agreements, because they're an offer of employment Welcome. Here's your title. Here's what you're going to make. Here's your benefits. Remember, you're an employee at will. And we'll take our Australian clients' employment agreements, which are substantial, and we'll winnow those down to like two pages here because there's just not that much, except if you're dealing on the senior officer level. Awesome. Georgie, we covered it. We're okay. Other thing I was just going to mention is the payroll side of things because you've got a different employment laws in each state. You've also got different payroll laws in each state. So ah. something to be really <laughs> mindful of is um, if you are going to be employing in people in multiple different states, that's something to consider. You've got you know the taxes, the lodgements, the reporting on the payroll side of things. So very important to be mindful of that when you're you know choosing to employ people across different states. Do you know anyone that can help with that? I also did um, I used to work for a um a payroll technology company for the last seven years. And you know, we it was an Australian payroll technology company and we were looking at, you know, the US and we went to the UK and New Zealand first of all, because I mean the US is just, you know, it, it is like you've got 50 different sets of legislation for payroll. So it's um a game changer, I think, when you are considering employing in the US. No, for sure. There's so much complexity and, you know, platforms are critical, I think, to handle that complexity. So, all right, wonderful. I was just some differences and some pros and cons. Let's get into some nitty gritty. Let's get into some basic setup stuff. I think, Kathy, we'll start with you. First question, if you want to be operating in the US, to just say we're, you know, we want to get up there. We just want to be operating. We want to be yeah. having some US customers. Do you need a US company at that point? One more time that I'm kind of biased, right? I think you do. But I've had lots of Australian companies that I've talked with that have sort of gauged and weighed and balanced when do they have to actually go forward instead of a U.S. company. And, you know, maybe they'll enter into a few U.S. customer contracts with their the what I call the Australian parent. But at some point, you're doing enough business, you're starting to hire people here, and you need the protection of a... U.S. entity to wall off any potential liability from the Australian parent. So then it becomes pretty important to have that. Let's dig into that a tiny bit. So I think at that point, people have got two decisions to make. Do I have Australian parent company with a U.S. subsidiary to handle that U.S. risk and operation, or do I flip up and become a U.S. parent entity, potentially with U.S. subsidiary and Australian subsidiary, which is what Kate did. And I would suggest that one of the biggest decisions or one of the biggest factors in making that decision is who are your investors going to be and where do they want your parent company to be. Some investors in the U.S. will only invest in a U.S. company. That's quite common. Uh, it is becoming more common to for U.S. investors to invest globally, but it's not the majority and there is still a lot of complexity for them. And I think ideally they would like you to have a Delaware C Corp in, in most circumstances. So that's one big factor to take into account. So if we're not just so, the first example is we're not getting any U.S. investors now, but we'd like to test out the U.S. market. We're a software as a service company. What would be sort of the trigger points in your opinion when you might say, all right, we've we've tested the waters, but we really should have like a US subsidiary now? Yeah, I think 
once you start engaging in a substantial way with U.S. customers and you've got employees or consultants on the ground, that's usually the line that's drawn. And when people decide to move forward, Australian companies, and I'm assuming that our audience has an Australian company because if there are founders in Australia that are heading straight here, that's a different story. But for Australian entities that are existing, usually that's how they decide. And when they decide that, the good news is the answer is pretty simple about what they do. Because most of our clients are going to eventually seek venture capital, they will set up in Delaware as a Delaware entity. Against what I just said about our 50 equal United States, Delaware decided decades ago that it was going to leap ahead of every other state. And it has the most sophisticated company-friendly laws in the U.S. So it broke the rule that I just described. And because it did, most U.S. public companies are Delaware Corps. VCs don't even want to think about another state. They want you to be a Delaware C Corp. As I said, most sophisticated laws. So we just steer our companies straight to becoming a Delaware C Corp. Another anomaly is even though I'm a California lawyer, I am permitted to advise as to Delaware corporate law. And that is almost all I do. For the reasons we just talked about. I can totally understand that. So we also see LLCs and people might hear about LLCs. I'll just quickly touch on that from our experience and we're doing some research on it. So an LLC for Aussies is kind of like a sole trader partnership yeah. kind of thing. So it allows you to do some stuff and trade and what have you. And there's a little bit of benefit to the way that is, but it's sort of like a day one thing. Like just say you start off with a sole trader in Australia, you then you get your company. It's a bit like that. So as soon as you want to get investment, like you might be able to get your friends and family around done with an LLC. Yeah. You can sort of have like a stock option sort of thing, but like you just shouldn't do it. Please don't do it. Like if you're going to be up there, it's all C-Corp. So just to let you know that it is there and someone might talk to you about it, but just skip over that completely because it's only going to cause you problems. If someone's giving you that kind of advice, and I'm talking to the audience, they are not experienced in working with startups. They just aren't. Because sure, LLCs are a great thing for U.S. restaurants and things like that, but that's not what you all are trying to do. And so you probably are talking to wrong people. So, yeah. Great. And Georgie, you know, you're obviously big in the employment and contractor space and hiring and building teams and how deal works potentially delays or enhances or changes a little bit about how you might need to think about your entity structures and stuff. So I think it'd be wonderful to hear your opinion on how that side of things works and how deal could help in that situation too. Yeah, so deal um, definitely, it allows businesses to, before you go through that commitment phase of establishing an entity, you can test the market, you can validate your product in a new market. What Deal has done around the world is uh, put together go-to-market teams around the world to expand into new regions. And so what we see with our Australian companies and APAC is probably is the second fastest growing region in terms of hiring abroad. So we saw between January to June 2022, 151% increase in Australian companies actually hiring abroad. And one of the top five countries is the US. They might just get a footprint for a period of time to establish themselves in the US and uh, validate their product in the market before establishing uh, an entity there. So if you're not signing contracts and things like that, and Kathy can obviously talk to this in a lot more detail and legalese and so forth, but if you just need a footprint there, you know, to have some people on the ground to establish distribution networks for a period of time, salespeople, content writers, depending on, you know, whether you want to hire people as contractors or full-time employees, you can do either. Until such time that you decide that you want to establish, you can use a system like Deal to hire people on the ground in the US to validate your product and to you know establish yourselves there for a period of time until such time that you decide to establish an entity. Yeah, I think it's a good idea, and finding those, those sort of trigger points is an important part of your expansion strategy. And you know, doing an entity, are you going to have Deal helping? One of the cool things we like about working with Deal is um, it's not just our US team. You know, we can have our team members all around the world sort of on the one platform. And so it helps us with the breadth of, you know, finding talent and, and enabling them. And, you know, like if you have to pay them on Upwork and like it just becomes a bit of a palaver. So, you know, it's nice to have that, that platform that helps, you know, with your team everywhere. It's awesome. It just gives um, you that flexibility. I'll just paint one picture to the prior company that I worked for. So we expand to the UK 
And we were always going to establish an entity. So we were in the process of establishing the entity, but it took us about six months to do that because our one of our directors had a family trust. And so the authorities look at that and it takes a longer period of time to get that entity and the bank accounts established. So we could have used Deal in that six-month period to have someone onboarded on the ground, building brand awareness, making sales, building relationships. So, you know, it can serve multiple purposes and there's many use cases for it, but it does give you the flexibility. And we all know how important momentum is while we're burning X dollars every month and how painful that is. So, you know, I think understanding these different, I guess, opportunities is super, super important. I think the medium term is probably, you know, if you're going to be big and a thousand employees in the country, you're probably going to have your own setup. But, you know, you have to work out how to get there first. Jeremy, anything to add on this point, mate? Um, from your perspective, I guess you're working with the actual hiring processes and, and yeah. with the employees. and Yeah. You, you kind of uh, sort of hit exactly the point that I was going to make there where I think it's probably guided by what your recruitment plan is for the US. So if you are planning on hiring a senior leader who's going to build out a substantial team, you're probably going to go down the road of setting up the entity relatively early so that that structure is in place. If your intention is to hire a couple of people, see how things work, candidates are totally comfortable with organizations like Deal where it doesn't create any sort of barrier to them joining an organization where they think there's not an entity here. Does that mean these guys are serious about the market? Organizations like Deal are becoming quite prevalent and it is a really great way for people to get to market quickly, validate, hire people, everything's set up for them so candidates know there's no kind of missing areas to my hiring process. You know, it's all perfectly legal. I'm covered under everything that I want to. But as you start to scale, then yeah, you'll start to see that transition happen. But I kind of have a a foot in both camps because we have businesses that do both. It just depends on what they're, you know, how quickly they intend on scaling will will tend to lead them down one of those two roads. Yeah, I feel like the speed of scaling is a big part of it as well. Like you going holistic, like it yeah. can be nice to have a platform where you can just be, you know, really getting that done. And probably the seniority of the candidate that you're hiring as well. If you're going in to hire a leader, they probably will want an entity that is there from the get-go. If you're hiring more of your individual contributor salespeople, you probably would look at deal where you can just get it it moving a bit more quickly. Hey, let's cover quickly the employee versus contractor question. I think a lot of people when they're expanding, they're wondering, um, which way should I go? What are the pros and cons? Jeremy, from your perspective, are both a good opportunity or is one or the other much better when expanding? Is it a short-term versus long-term thing? Like, What are the major factors for people to consider? So I come at this from a sales recruitment, marketing recruitment headspace where very rarely will you get contract salespeople. Typically, you'll hire somebody on a permanent basis to do your sales because if they you know, are on a contract and they could depart early, you're going to lose a lot of your momentum. I would say the overwhelming majority prefer permanent employment because of all the benefits that come with it. And like health insurance in the US is a particularly critical element where people feel more secure if they have you know, health entitlement benefits that come with them being a permanent employee of the organization. And, you know, very good personal story of why health insurance is so important. We had, my wife and I had a baby in the US and he was six weeks premature. We had to have, you know, be in the hospital for six weeks and the bill for him was somewhere around half a million dollars. But Whoa. because of health insurance, oh uh, we paid $3,000. So, People always think worst case scenario in the US and, you know, health expenses are incredibly high if you don't have good coverage. So it tends to mean most people have a focus on being a permanent employee that will get those benefits. And it's difficult to attract people if you don't offer those from the word go. I'm just going to stop this session now. Like if that's the only (laughs) takeaway everybody gets, it's more than enough. No, that's incredibly insightful and valuable. And I suppose as business leaders to be able to provide those benefits for your team versus not, it's like, you know, a wonderful thing. And we should all be, you know, looking to support our team members in that way. So yeah. And, and look, cool. it's it's very expensive to have health insurance for your employees, but it's critical. I mean, when you compare it to we're, we're incredibly fortunate in Australia and New Zealand with the cost of health insurance, you're probably looking at six, seven thousand dollars a year per employee for health insurance in the US as a bit of an average figure. But when you have things like this happen, you see 
actually that is really important sort of welfare and, you know, being mindful of looking after your employees. And it will be a reason people won't join a business. And I think that's probably the the most important thing to think about is getting really good talent. You can't let that sort of stand in the way of getting the right people. Amazing. Georgie, anything to add on that? I suppose my first thought was, well, if you go through deal, you know, is this all organized and, you know, do the health benefits all get like packaged up somehow? Like, how does that all happen? (laughs) I should know that. But uh, anyway, so luckily I have a COO that knows all this. So you can teach me as well. Yeah, so the contractor side of things is obviously much more flexible. It's an arrangement between the business and the contractor. There's no liability taken on by deal. And just for the audience's understanding, what we've been talking about is, so deal acts as an employer of record or EOR provider. And what that is, is we allow businesses to hire in a country where you don't have an entity. So that's as simple as that. So we take on the liability when you are employing a full-time employee. And yes, um, health insurance is can be bundled into that. So um, across the world, right. we work with a lot of providers around the world to offer health insurance, either as a if it's you know mandatory or if it's an additional benefit to employees. But yeah, the contractor side of things does give businesses much more flexibility because the contractor has to manage all their own taxes and lodgements and things like that. Whereas um, if you want more control, if you want to bring people on as team members, as Jeremy was sort of suggesting, you know, depending on where you're at in terms of the stage that you are in in your progress into a new market um, and who you're hiring will depend on, you know, whether you are happy bringing on people as a contractor or as a full-time employee and the types of roles that they're doing. So we also see a lot of businesses who might have five or six contractors on board and have been contractors for the business for a period of time. And they want to bring those, they've identified the skills, like these people have great skills that they're part of the team, they're real team members, and they want to bring them on as full-time employees to have them as part of the team, have a little bit more control, offer the health benefits. Yeah, so we definitely see sort of one, both sides. We have about 110,000 employees and contractors hired through deal. Probably 10 to 20% of that is full-time employees. So particularly from Australia and New Zealand, businesses are more inclined to hire full-time employees as well, just to offer the employees those benefits and bring them in as part of your team. Awesome. Thank you. Um, So just to bring the audience in a little bit. So we've had a couple of questions so far. We've managed to answer them both just on the run. So well done, panel. One was about which state to incorporate in, tick, and the other one was about when to set up an entity if you're hiring employees there. So I think we've done pretty well there. If you want more detail on those questions, please do put it in there. Now would be a good time. Like We came into this wanting to know things. If there's anything we've talked about that you'd like more clarity on, now would be a great topic in the Q&A so I know how much time to leave. Otherwise, we've got plenty of really important content to come. So we'll probably run right up to the end of the hour for you. So yeah, so chuck any questions in there. So moving right along, you know, we talked about hiring. Jeremy, I'm going to stick on the recruitment element of this a little bit with you because in my opinion, the US expansion is more about customer generation, right? It's more about growth. It's more about market size. Like you're not really going to the US to, you know, reduce your cost of your team, you know, or, well, I can't think of any other real reason why you would go there. It's very niche. Like it's really an expansion strategy, I think, for a lot of Australian customers. So the first top hires, I think, is like sales and marketing and which one do you hire in what order? What's the natural sort of like I was even asking your teammate, you know, like, would it be an AE or an SDR and how do they work and what salaries they earn? And like, there's so much quality information. So I do recommend hitting up, you know, the search experience team after this. But, you know, I guess, is there any big topics um, or advice you would give people when going up to sales and marketing people, like maybe building your first few and then maybe scaling up? Yep. It's a difficult question to sort of distill a a perfect answer because obviously every situation is a little bit different for each organization. And I guess the footprint they have in Australia and New Zealand can be different and can impact what hires they'll make. I think the takeaways people should really get from this webinar in terms of, you know, the what we've seen be successful is try and hire at least a couple of people when you go make that footprint. Hiring one off and then waiting for that person to be successful and then build tends to be a much harder strategy. If you hire a couple of people, start building a bit of a culture. You also just insulate yourself or ensure yourself a little bit against the fact that you probably will have people come and depart your business. So you don't want to be constantly 
hiring one person, maybe they work out, maybe they don't, and then you have to replace them and it becomes a bit stop-start for your customer base. Typically, I think the first couple of hires you want to make are people that are going to be selling directly to customers. So you want to get a couple of account executives that usually can generate their own leads, so can be pretty self-sufficient. Then you'll start to build a bit of a pod around them. So you'll bring in some SDRs. You may hire a sales engineer, depending on the complexity of your product. And then you probably want to hire some kind of player coach who can start to be a bit of a mentor and a leader to the people in region. Managing salespeople remotely is difficult. So the faster you can build a bit of late leadership uh, in the US, the better really. And whether that's someone from the mothership that heads over to manage those people, or it's hiring somebody in the US that's dedicated to being a player coach. But I think to keep costs down, you want to make sure that you have as many revenue generators as possible early on before you start to hire some of the more senior VP level structure that you'd want to put in place eventually. You want people that are really proving out the concept of selling into the US and being successful, and then you can build more of an infrastructure around them. Awesome, mate. Thank you. We appreciated your advice. Um, that's exactly what we got. We got um, like an AE that can do. And he's actually an SDR that's converting into an AE, which helps yep. us a little bit with the cost associated with that role because good yep. AEs are like pretty hectic for Aussie startups. It's a bit of a shock when you first look. And so I guess from a founder perspective, really understanding what it's going to cost to go to market and making sure you've got enough capital, right? If I need one or two AEs and then I need to put a couple of SDRs there and I need some leadership, like how many customers am I going to need and how long is that going to take and where am I going to break even? And I think these things are all really, really important. So making sure you yeah, and I think model. you got okay. good investors that support your strategy and, and those sorts of things is pretty important because I think if you're fast, you're going to have a pretty bad time. <laughs> totally. I always say to people, don't convert a US salary to Australian dollars. You'll just go to bed depressed at night because it's just, <laughs> you know, it's a totally different market that you're operating in and you're you US people will be the highest paid people in your business more than likely. And that's just part of being in that market and selling to that market. But they should also generate more revenue for your business than anybody else in the organization. So it's just, it's a larger investment to make. But I say to people, look, your first AE may earn more than your CEO. And, you know, that's hopefully a good thing for everybody because they generate a load of revenue that makes more money for everybody. Absolutely. And I think there was a rule that I learned recently, which is about five to one. So yep. if just say you're paying a couple hundred thousand dollars for an AE, they should be booking a million dollars worth of revenue yep. for you. And That's so a really good ratio. Can, if you can get that in your mind, and then you can see that they're getting up to that pretty quickly. Because I think one thing with US markets as well, they can move pretty quickly, but they're meant to get up to speed really, really quickly as well. So there's not this expectation of having like a long onboarding process. They're expecting to be like hitting quota and paying their way very quickly and you should have that mindset so you're not burning a ton of cash while you're building your team as well. It's not the Aussie way, I don't think, but I think you need to be a little bit more hectic with your commercialism when you're over there because everybody else is and you don't get many chances. That's it. Look, you're competing against people that, you know, particularly people that have raised money in the US, they have not unlimited budget, but somewhat, you know, they, they raise very large rounds, you know, 25, $30 million A rounds are not unusual in the US. And so them paying 20, 30, $40,000 more for somebody is just something that, it, you know, it becomes a bit of a rounding error when you think about what they will generate and the money that's been raised. They should ramp up quickly. That's the investment you're making is, they should know my market. They should know the customer base that we're wanting to sell into. And the teething out process should be condensed significantly, which means we can start to generate the revenue we want really quickly. Awesome. All right. Well, let's change tack a little bit. Fortunately, my little G up questions work very well. And we've had a little string of questions come through. So well done. If you've got a couple more, get them in now. I'll leave about 10 minutes at the end. We'll dig into those. That's very valuable. Thank you. But before we do that, we'll do a little bit around raising capital and US investors. I think it's a hugely important aspect of expanding. We get questions about this all the time. You know, what do US investors need? What's the right timing? And so on and so forth. So we'll just dig into that a little bit. So from my perspective, the timing, and I'll ask if anybody, you know, has experience with this, but timing of US investors. So there's some US investors will invest globally and they're looking for global opportunities. And so I think investing in general and capital raising is a matchmaking exercise. So if you want US investors, you would go and you would find the ones that are investing globally. Like Jason Calacanis, when he invested in us, he was specifically trying to get out of the mess 
and evaluations of San Francisco and gets evaluations that won't you could actually get a return on. And I'm being a little bit facetious, but people are looking for international investments. If you can find them, great. That's option one. And I think every Aussie founder should probably be doing a little bit of that because they invest faster and harder. Valuations are better. And you know, certainly that was the case with our round at the time. So there's an opportunity there. But I think the majority of US investors still want to invest in companies that are US focused and you go into market in the US, have US customers, US revenue, and have proven that out. And that's still the vast majority. And so if you want to access them, that, you need to be there or you need to show why you're going to be there, when you're going to be there, and they need to be pretty convinced that, that that's going to work out. So normally that means you can't be doing pre-seed or seed. You need to be sort of seed past Series A and beyond because how can a pre-seed company go to market in the US? I mean, unless you're going to move there, so that's another thing you can do, just move and base yourself there, but that's different. And that's definitely an opportunity, and I would probably recommend every founder doing that. I shouldn't say that, strain ecosystem supporter, but anyway, there's definitely some benefits to that. But um, that's sort of my opinion. I did want to also plug Austrade. So if you're looking to expand, please try and join the landing pad in San Francisco. It's so amazing. Like David and the team there, unbelievably helpful. We just went through it. We did the whole program. They taught us about the cultural differences, the sales and marketing differences, and just so many other things. So if you can get into that, please do try. I know um, Kathy's pretty connected in there. Both Georgie and Jeremy aren't. I think they probably are. But, you know, I think it's just, it's just great. We learn so much and they can guide you on some strategy there as well. And one of the things they taught us was, okay, get enough money to go to market properly, get a year's worth of data, and then take that data and rate your US round. So that's another interesting, clear strategy that you can undertake as well. They did also tell us that, Sometimes you need to do that twice before you can ignite the US investors. So just got to be prepared to be able to really get a good cup two or three years done sometimes before you can get that US cash in the door, which can probably be pretty difficult. But I'm just sharing what I've been told in that area. What about the flip up then, Kathy? So we had to flip up. Let's talk a little bit about that experience. Let's talk about what it actually is, big things that are important on that one. Sure. Just to sort of back up a little bit in terms of trajectory, some of our Australian clients come to us, they set up a U.S. subsidiary, they go on to do amazing things, grow organically, never need to flip, or they get acquired by a U.S. company. One of my Australian companies was offered a great opportunity to sell their company to a U.S. entity. And right before we tried to close, they said, oh, wait, I think we would rather you be a U.S. company and then we'll buy you. So why don't you flip first? And we're like, that's ridiculous. You can get great Australian counsel, figure out Australian law and just go ahead and buy an Australian company and you don't need to make them go through that silly flip process. But many, like Cake, many, many Australian companies are doing really well, expand to the U.S., are surrounded by eager U.S. investors who say, we'd like you to be a U.S. company. And what they mean is you Cake at one point had its Australian parent and it had a Delaware sub. And I'm just guessing because I don't know the particulars, but that USVC said, love to invest in you, need you to do a flip. And what that means is that Delaware subsidiary issues shares to the shareholders in Australia so that the Australian shareholders now, the Delaware entity and the Delaware entity owns 100% of the Australian company. And all the IP is sitting, at that point in time, all the IP is sitting in the Australian company. Then the US VCs are comfortable going ahead and able to invest. My layman's terms, even though I am an accountant still, the way I sort of describe it is, you know, we put a company in on top of our Australian company, and then we moved, we replicated the exact shareholding and all the ESOP and everything. We just moved it up a level. So instead of having that whole, like all your safes and notes and shares and options in the Australian company, we made a US one and then we moved it all up. But then there's like a tax transaction that happens. So you need like Australian tax lawyers and accountants and stuff to make sure you don't cause a huge tax headache when you yeah. do it. And there's normally rollover relief. So there's, there's a whole big polarity to go through in Australia. And, and then you have US attorneys set everything up in the US and they kind of work together. And then it all right. kind of happens. But it's like, if I'm an accountant and I, it was the most hectic thing really I've ever seen in my life. Like, yeah. we were a few years down the track and we had like all sorts of legacy junk, like heaps of us do, before you finally get one to come to take off. And right. then, like, you're going to deal with all that. So, like, it's a bit of a beast. It uh, costs a lot. 
just be aware, yeah. like put the cost into your raise as well or whatever, because yeah. like it's the biggest yeah. legal bill you'll have ever seen in your life. Like someone first told me, I was like, fuck, like it probably is productizing a bit now and I'm not trying to hassle lawyers at all, Kathy, but like it's a bit of a shock. With some of our Australian companies who come to us and they're like two founders and a save, doing a flip for that, much less time, much less money. Also, oh, our firm, you know, to do a little commercial, we're not a humongous law firm, and so our fees aren't at that level. But yes, depending on how complex your structure is, if you've got lots of preference shares and different series of preference shares, that increases the cost and the time to do the flip. Absolutely. And I've had a couple different clients come to me and say, you know, we're super excited. Someone wants to put 200000 into our company. And so we want to flip. And I'm like, don't flip for $200,000. You need right. to have, and this is, you know, I can't tell you the dollar happy level, but you need to be have some investors who are really willing to put in big, big money before you fool around with a flip. So. 100%. Yeah, I had someone ask me about a 25K, like accelerator <laughs> check, and I was like, oh, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> cool. All right. So we're getting close. So let's do some Q&A. So anonymous attendee has asked, can you convert a Wyoming LLC into a Delaware C-Corp? I reckon you can, but this is a Kathy question. Sure you can. It would be a, a bit of a pain, but you definitely can. You can convert from any state to any other state. What's your email address, Kathy? <laughs> and you can we'll do those things in January, not in December. <laughs> we'll share our information for you to get in contact with us. I mean, a lot of is December 31st is our end of the year. And unlike Australians with June 30th, so... Everybody's hectic. Yeah. Cool. It says, Jason, knowing what you know, would you just skip the Australian experience? Unfortunately, it depends on many things. So I have a family that love living where I live and I wanted to build a tech company on the Gold Coast. So I think every situation is different. And so, you know, I really wanted to build a Queensland company. And so I'm very proud that we started here. And plus, like, I didn't know any investors in the US. And so I think it's sometimes easier to get your pre-seed done in your own city or state. Like, you've got to lean on your own friends and family and your own network and, and all that trust um, to get that first bit of money in the door. I think it's very difficult to raise money in the US, like that pre-seed round without a network there already. You have to go build the network. So you might as well just do it in your own city. I think there does come a point where if you wanted to go to market in the US, for me, that's the key point. Like, when do you want to be getting customers in the US and how committed are you? Are you going to move there? Like, if you wanted to move there and hit a city up and go to market straight away, then 100%. You might get your pre-seed round and you put your travel money and your accommodation in there and you just get over there. That seems reasonable to me. One thing, though, if you read Disciplined Entrepreneurship, which is one of the best books on you know startups, talks about having... Uh, your beachhead market. So I think Australia is a wonderful beachhead market in many markets and you need a smaller market where the competition isn't so great normally to get your shit together. And so I think it's nice to actually do all that learning here, find a little niche that isn't so competitive, which is what Kate did. We're able to push the other smaller guys kind of out of the market, take it over and then utilize all that experience and track record and credibility to go on and expand. So I still think that would be the blue ribbon approach. But I think it also it creates really good discipline starting a business in Australia and New Zealand as well. And that's where we see a lot of the companies now that are heading over there are actually really well regarded because profitability has always been something that's been a feature for them or you know has been much more in the near-term focus than US businesses. And given that the way the market is right now, Investors are very heavily focused on when can companies get to break even and when can they get to profitability. And because there's not the sheer volume of money that exists in the ANZ region yet from an investment perspective, you have to be really smart with how you spend your money and you have to be really dedicated to building an efficiently run business, which I think when you then get to the US means your fundamentals are very well structured to be successful and run a business that will turn to profitability relatively quickly Sometimes in the US, we can see businesses raise very large rounds and now are doing very heavy cuts because they kind of grew in this sort of gluttony way where it was like, hey, there's always going to be more money coming. So I don't need to think about how efficient I'm being with every dollar that I'm spending. So I think the market here is very good for toughening you up, really figuring out if you have a good idea or not, because it's much harder to succeed with little money. And then when you're there, you're kind of ready to go and ready to fight. Awesome. All right. So 
let's rapid fire a few questions here. So Marie has a question about what are your thoughts on tax implications and completing form W8 Ben E for an Australian company? Kathy, are you across that? Is anyone across no that? Way. Where have I seen that W8 Ben? What is that form? We'll have to come back to you on that one, Marie. So I'll take that one down as an action. Next up, we have Emma. I'm a repat. Does that mean you went to the US and came back? I think so. And wanted to start in Australia. However, I'm becoming increasingly aware of the lack of TAM. Yep. And the brain drain. Yep. So look, from a cake perspective, we would love to have a big TAM. We'd be a much bigger company today if we started in a big company and we could have gone in a straight line. Like expanding has been super, super hard. But at the same time, we may never have succeeded if we were competing against Carter from day one. So I think it's a double-edged sword. You have to understand your market. You have to understand your product. You have to understand the competition in the space. And if you can find like a little patch in Australia to go, go for it. But if you can do the same in a big market, I'd probably suggest doing it in a big market because it sucks to have to do all that expansion stuff because it's, it's pretty hard. Uh, quick one there. Uh, B2B, oh, James, what did James say? Based on what Georgie knows now, would she take an AU startup to the US first or follow her previous employer's path to the UK first for a B2B SaaS? Interesting question. I think it really depends on the product that you're selling. So we went to the UK. It was actually purely because of a um, one of our founders wanted to move there. So um, it wasn't necessarily a strategic decision, but I think it's another Commonwealth country. It was a payroll product. So the payroll scenario in in the UK versus Australia is completely different again. So 20% of our product had to be rewritten for that market. So it really just depends. And, you know, whereas we looked at the U- the US market and we had to write a software system for 50 different states, or we could have started in one, one state and just focus on one state. So I think it can depend on personal circumstances, but also where you see your product fit. One last question. We're going to go right out of time. It's an interesting one with the recession, potentially recession. Is it a good period to be launching in the US for tech businesses? Really interesting insight on this. A lot of companies are not being funded. So if you are funded, potentially that's an advantage. So I think you need to look at your own situation, your own funding, sort of make that assessment for your industry. Funded companies have a major or or profitable companies have a major advantage over everybody else. And you have to assume that your competition, some of your competition struggling pretty badly. So I think it is potentially good opportunities for people. Anyone have any other insights on that? I always like to refer to Ayrton Senna quote where he says, it's really hard to overtake people in the dry, but it's very easy to overtake a lot of people in the wet. And so I think in a market like this, if people are hurting, you know, get to the US and take advantage of being able to establish a really good market position very quickly, as opposed to when it's rosy for everybody. Also what Jeremy said earlier on profitability, I think if you have established profitability in Australia, that's a really good position to be in. Awesome. All right. Well, look, I think it's a great optimistic way to finish um, in potentially gloomy times. Australian founders are some of the best in the world. We all know many of them. We've all helped many of them. And, you know, we're all very grateful to be here to help you navigate some of those challenges and make sure you do hit us up. We're going to be sharing a bunch of information after this via email, including the recording. So we appreciate your time. We hope we've done uh, your time justice. We certainly tried. And um, yeah, good luck with expansion. and. Um, Happy holidays as they stay in the US. Thanks to the panel as well. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Bye.